Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Why do chapters 41 and 42 of Ezekiel spend so much time talking about the monotonous details of temple architecture? Why would these details matter in a book like Ezekiel, which undermines the temple cult in Jerusalem? Are the design schematics outlined in Ezekiel applicable to real-world construction? Even if they were, why list these lengthy, boring details as part of the biblical storyline? Richard and I reflect on the usefulness of boring texts found in Ezekiel, Exodus, and elsewhere in the Bible. Like all good things, the blessings of these passages come to those who are patient and willing to listen over and over again. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 55 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This past weekend, Richard gave a beautiful lecture on Ezekiel and the section that deals with the construction of the temple and the heavenly city. And it led to an interesting discussion in his lecture about the problem, or rather the important challenge, of dealing with difficult, boring, and I really mean boring, texts in the Bible. So, Richard, tell us about your lecture. Tell us about what you were trying to get everyone to understand about these texts and, and why, when a text is boring, you should actually pay closer attention. Oftentimes, when people are reading something really boring, the question is, how am I supposed to get something out of this? I'm not getting something out of this. And then the mind goes to the person's insecurities and says, well, maybe I'm not smart enough, or maybe I don't know enough, and so maybe the problem is with me. And what I say is, you know, if the text is leading you in a particular direction and it's leading you there very strongly, go with it, see what happens. And back when I was teaching, I used to tell my students, lean into the pain. You know, if there's some kind of pain in the text, usually the reason why it's painful is because it's not meeting your expectations. Right. You want the text to be a particular way. You want it to be exciting in a particular way. You want it to be meaningful in a particular way. You want it to be clear in a particular way. And here's a text that's not allowing you that. Okay, why is it not allowing you that? Is it doing something on purpose that might be preventing you to get out of it what you want to get out of it? And that's the question I think is important when dealing with this problem of a really boring text. And, you know, if you look at really boring texts in the Bible, it's interesting because another one of these really boring texts is the second half of Exodus where it describes building the tabernacle and the sacrifices at the tabernacle and the sticks going in the other sticks and the loops and the holes and the skins and all this really boring stuff. I mean, people think Exodus is exciting. When they say that, they mean the story of the Exodus. They don't mean the book of Exodus, because once you hit the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, it's boring. So what do you do? 
What do you do in these hopelessly repetitious, hopelessly meaningless details, and you're just swimming in them? What do you do? I mean, many people just want to skip it, go on to the next section, and I can understand the reason why they'd want to do that. But let's take it seriously. This is just as much scripture as anything else. What are we supposed to be learning from this? And I think this is the important question to be asking. So we are having a discussion about chapters 41 and 42, and you contextualize it with the building project at St. Elizabeth and the work that is being done with the city, with schematics, with plans. Uh, talk about that, because I think the, the example you used resonated with people, and they began to understand the function of the monotony of the schematics of the temple. Yeah, I mean, people get excited about building things. They get excited about building a shiny new building. And boy, this is talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. And what's more exciting and more shiny than the heavenly Jerusalem? I mean, right, this, right. Is, uh, this is a huge deal. And lo and behold, one's shiny view of the heavenly Jerusalem becomes very tarnished when you realize that you have to measure how many cubits long each one of the chambers is going to be and how much land you're going to need in order to build it. And where do you actually put the staircase to go from one story to the other story? And it's very boring. And I think that scripture deflates our desire to build something on our own. It's constantly trying to deflate us. The parish gets excited about a building project, but the individual actually working with the architect and working with the city and dealing with everyone's requests about what they want and what size things should be, what shape they should be, what color they should be, the person dealing with all of those issues understands that there's nothing exciting or glamorous at all about a building project. Right. I mean, even a poor parish is going to contract an architect to do the real detailed stuff. What size of pipe are you going to have go into the sink? You know, <laughs> you have to do these things when you build. Right, it's so not it's, exciting. It's, it's not glamorous. No, it's kind of like Ezekiel saying, okay, look, let's not get the architect and the engineer and the project manager together. Let's get the whole community together and let's go through all of the grueling, painful details of every last city code and every last piece of trim and see how long people stay with us. Exactly. And I think that what's significant about both Exodus and Ezekiel is that the people themselves find themselves in a wilderness and homeless. And for both groups, it's a bummer. They don't want to be homeless. The people out in the wilderness are not excited about being in the wilderness of Sinai. The people on the river Kebar in Babylonia are not excited about being there. They're excited about this new place that they're hoping to get to one day. And then what the Lord does is he says, no, 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 I'm actually not living in the temple either. I'm homeless myself. In Ezekiel, he left the temple. And he's perfectly happy being out of the temple. He's probably happier being outside the temple. And so there's a teaching here about what it means to be in exile and to be homeless. And it's two-sided. One is exile is not nearly as bad as you think because the Lord's with you there. Right. And being at home is not as glamorous as you think. It's actually boring and monotonous. And it upturns our expectations about what life is going to be like when we one day have this heavenly Jerusalem that we've been longing for, and then it ends up being kind of boring. 
So what are some other boring texts that come to mind besides the lengthy codes in Exodus or this section of Ezekiel? I mean, give some other examples. Certainly it's at work with the genealogies. Right, yeah, that was a text that you brought up, Father, when we were talking about this. You were talking about Matthew 1, and I think we brought this up in our podcast of Matthew 1 right before Nativity and talking about how there's this monotony of names king after king after king after king after king. And the only thing exciting is when they say, oh, guess what? It was 14 generations. Like, oh, really? And then you want to go back and count. Like, that's the most exciting thing they can do there. The monotony there, just as the monotony at the end of Ezekiel is devaluing the construction of the actual temple, the monotony in the genealogy in Matthew is devaluing the preoccupation with pedigree and lineage and so forth. But Still, the fact that these things are lengthy and the fact that they're boring, is that the only point? I don't think so. Like, there's a lot going on in genealogies. Do we just dismiss all of the detailed measurements of the temple? I mean, clearly it's not about constructing an actual temple, but do these things still have metaphoric value? Well, I think one of the things that happens when you have something that's repetitious over and over and over and over and over again, as soon as there is an exception, you notice it immediately. So it sets up your expectations. So one of the things that I noticed in Ezekiel when reading aloud, someone should try to do this, read aloud 41 through 48 and see how well you're able to pay attention to what's going on. And I read it aloud to the group. And what I found fascinating is once you get to the description of the altar, there's very little description. All the description about the size of the windows and the chambers and everything, excruciating detail. But the altar, it's barely mentioned. Moreover, it doesn't say altar. It says something kind of like an altar. And typically when people talk about building a temple, the altar is the main feature. Of course. in, In Genesis, Jacob wants to set up an altar. I mean, it's actually folly for him to do so. I mean, we know the story. But the point is, in his mind... When something happens, you set up an altar. That's the basis for the shrine. In Hosea, the prophet tells the people, stop building altars. And so this is what's fascinating is you look at all the excruciating detail, and the one thing that may be exciting, the text snatches from you. It's like building a movie theater without a screen. Okay, we're going to need 18-inch wide seats And we're going to have arms with a cup holder of four and a half inches diameter. And on the seats, there's going to be number three purple velour seats. They're going to be seated at a 15-degree angle when they're not being deployed. And there's also going to be something kind of like a screen. But the curtains next to the screen are going to be made by this particular factory. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. You just skipped over the screen completely. (laughs) You know, why are you doing this? Now, with a movie screen, I don't know why you'd do this. Probably to get people to think about where they're actually sitting as opposed to what's going on in the screen. But here, it's precisely the exception that grabs your attention. And I think we mentioned this, too, when we talked about the genealogy in Matthew, because what grabs your attention there? It's the women. The women who are outside of the normal schema. And the Gentiles... Uriah the Hittite. And the exile, and the fact that you have mention of David, but David's line fails right in the middle of the genealogy. I mean, there are several elements that actually strike you. I think, though, it's much easier to grapple with the meaning of a genealogy because you are dealing with names of characters connected to other stories. I do think it's much harder 
when you're dealing with the design of the temple to really understand what's going on. Right. So my question is, beyond the simple fact of it being boring and picking up some of these hints, why should people make themselves listen to these texts? And I say listen because I think they should actually be read aloud in the churches. It's worth it to get together as a group and hear the description of the construction of the untemple. You know, the heavenly temple is another way of saying the untemple in Ezekiel. But why? Why should people force themselves to go through this, Richard? I think it's always nice when a group goes through a text because then collectively they have to grapple with the text and ask the question and someone has to say, okay, what's this text about? Okay, why are we not getting this text? And people have to grapple with it. And when you grapple with it as a group, all of a sudden people go much more deeply into it. But why read this particularly boring text? I brought this example up when I was talking, the wedding service. I mean, the priest can just as well sign the certificate and say, you're married. What do we need all that other stuff around? Well, you can attach some kind of symbolic meaning around the different actions and stuff like that. Okay, well, then what do you need the texts for? Okay, well, you need the biblical teaching, obviously, in order to contextualize what is marriage. Okay, fine. What are the prayers for? You have to actually ask, what are all these pieces for? One of the things I appreciated about the wedding, the way that it was done for me, is that you get over the giddiness and the excitement about the wedding, and you're thinking more about being married to this person. And by getting over the emotional part, you can start to think a little bit more clearly about what's going on. And I think reading boring texts from Scripture help us with this because we have to grapple with our own emotion over a certain topic. And we need to have that emotion deflated so that we get a little less excited about the heavenly Jerusalem, frankly. No, I I agree. I think there's more, though. That's what I'm saying. I think there's more. I think very often, by hearing these monotonous texts over and over and over again, which is the way they were intended to be heard repetitiously, you'll pick up on more subtleties than simply the fact that the altar is de-emphasized and the monotony is mocking the emphasis on materialism with respect to Jerusalem and so forth. I think even in the monotony of the schematics of the temple, which are intended to bore you out of your mind, there's still more hidden treasure to be found in terms of the kind of meaning you point to with the the emphasis of the altar. I think that's the point, that you have to keep hearing these things over and over again. It's not just deflating you and boring you so that you can reflect on what it's going to be like to be married. It's deflating you to deprogram you so that you will think about what it wants you to think about. So what's going on with the 500 cubits, we might not know. It might not be obvious to us, but it was written. Right. And it's obviously not about constructing something literal. It's obviously about something metaphoric. So then the effort becomes trying to figure out why 500 and 500 and so forth and so on. Yeah, I think that what you're describing is really any difficult text. I think that that's important. You know, when we were reading through the Book of the Twelve, a lot of that seemed monotonous to people. So the same questions were raised. Well, what is the deeper meaning here? And then you realize, oh, well, notice that Israel is being deflated in one book, and then the following book, the nations are being deflated. And this happens a couple times. Oh, there seems to be a kind of pattern we start to notice. Then once we see a more overarching pattern, 
then we can say, okay, there's something deeper going on in this story. And I think that's really, you know, why we keep reading the biblical text over and over and over again, is to always be looking for the deeper meaning that might be there. This has been a great discussion, Dr. Benton. It's unfortunate we couldn't meet each other face-to-face this week, but thanks to the wonders of technology, we can still connect. Hope you have a great day, and I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you very much, Father. Take care. Have a good week. All right. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.